Well, good morning. Welcome. It is truly a privilege to have the choir with us this morning, leading us in worship. So appreciate the songs that you have sung, both uh, vocally as well as with the hand chimes. Thank you so much for that this morning. Uh, I am Mark Burks. I do have the privilege of being the pastor here, and uh, it is an honor to be with you this morning and open up God's Word. We've been looking at the book of James and talking about what does it mean to fool ourselves. Uh, We have said that uh, we have the amazing capacity to deceive ourselves. Uh, it's, It's not funny funny, the things I can convince myself that are true, but yet are not. And we said at the very beginning of this, we started to unpack this book, and we said that living under the authority of God's word is our only protection against fooling ourselves. Without God's word to teach us and to guide us and to tell us what's true, we're just in a dilemma of guesses, hoping that we can figure out what's true. But living under the authority of God's word has been the theme of how we wanted to approach the book of James and understand what does it mean to no longer fool ourselves. And last week, last week we talked about patient endurance, those things we all love to talk about. If you missed it last week, you know how much you appreciate that first section of James where it talks about the difficulties and the trials. Most of us have those verses written on coffee mugs or bumper stickers because we love Love to think about the enduring of trials. And I was leaving a, uh, a store yesterday morning. And last week we talked about how we just don't understand blessing. That sometimes we can fool ourselves in what it means to be blessed. And I was leaving a store yesterday morning and a man looked at me and said, hey, have a blessed day. And I thought about that and I thought, he obviously wasn't in church last week with us to know that we said what it means to be blessed is to have patient endurance in taking the long view and the Lord's view of our time and our circumstances. And I thought, boy, if I really thought about that to say he was, he was recommending I have a day where I experience patience and endurance and the Lord's trials and, and learn what it means to walk with him. I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do today. But that might not be what he meant in those circumstances. But today I want us to keep on looking at James and I want us to look At James chapter 2, James chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 13 this morning. James chapter 2 begins this way. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law that is found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin and you are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. 
For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when He judges you. Boy, it really makes me wonder how we're seated this morning. Maybe, maybe we should switch the seats around a little bit. Those of you who brought your uh, tax returns with you that show your aggregate income for the last year, if you would please raise your hands. We're going to reshuffle some seating here. And I'm not sure how we'd want to do that because I think in, in most congregations that have gathered this morning, the primo seats might be in the back along the wall. I don't know. I'm not sure what was going on in the churches that James was writing this letter to. Maybe the, the good seats were still up front. Uh, but, but however that case may be, how bizarre of a situation, isn't it? To think about that people would be coming into a, a gathering of the church, a, a gospel community to worship the Lord together, and there'd be this weird sort of favoritism, this weird sort of partiality. I think it'd be easy for us to to kind of look at a passage like this and say, well, I'm glad that doesn't happen to us. I'm glad, I'm glad this section of Scripture doesn't apply to us. But, but does it? I mean, do, do we do kind of the same thing in different ways? I mean, when we see it, we recognize it. I mean, honestly, when, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me think about that. When, when we see it done to us, we recognize it. When we see people treating us unfairly or demonstrating partiality or, or we feel like they're discriminating against us or, or treating us poorly, we, we sense that. We, we feel that. But, but maybe when we're dispensing that kind of favoritism, maybe we don't necessarily see it as, as clearly. You know, as I was thinking about what this means about fooling or how do we fool ourselves about favoritism? How do, I, how do I fool myself about the way that I treat people in this partiality favoritism? There were a couple things that came to mind. One of is how, how am I only loving people who increase my status? Do, do I only look to be friends with people who increase my status? Look, it wasn't that long ago, actually it was, it wasn't that long ago that I was in middle school. And I understand what that means to try to make friends with people to increase your status. This might surprise you, I didn't have a lot of status in middle school. I know, that's shocking to you. But, but the temptation to build friends and relationships with people that I thought could move me up the food chain right, could move me up the status that if I could only get into that, if I could only get to that lunch table, huh? then my, let me tell you how ridiculous this was. In our middle school gym, up on the wall by the scoreboard were the names of the, of the, the athletes, I use the term loosely, who were on the eighth grade basketball team. From the time I walked into middle, middle school, all I thought was, I gotta get my name on that wall. I've got to, whatever it takes. I went to basketball camps, I worked hard, I did everything I could. Seventh grade, I was the 16th man on a 15-man roster. I went to a small school, by the way. 
I got cut right before, right before the first game. So, oh, I worked hard, worked hard, worked hard, because I thought if I could only get my name on the wall up there with the eighth grade best, all of my social status dreams would come. I would be somebody. Well, you know what? I worked really hard, and the next year I was the 15th man on that 15th man roster, and I never ever actually saw the court uh, during a game at any point in time, but I did develop scar tissue on my knees from the way my elbows kind of sat there through the games. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But it's interesting how we look for relationships and people that we think will increase our profile, increase our status, give us more credibility. Uh, social media has only made this worse. It's one of those where now we look and see, well, who follows who and who's friends with who and how many likes did this get and how many retweets did that have. It's, it's, it's a way that we say, are we just looking for relationships and people that will be favorable? Can we get somebody to notice and be favorable for us? The other side of that, besides just only looking to love people who increase our profile, I, I think there's also a danger in how do we treat people that we think can't increase our profile? How do, we, how do we treat people, and dare I use the term, how do we treat people that we might consider are ben, beneath us? At, at, a, at, a, at a lunch table even farther down the food chain than, than we are, at a, in, a, in, a, in a small group even farther down the chain than we are, do we treat them the way that James is talking here about favoritism and partiality. Do we, do we treat people like that? I think what was going on here in James was, we know the church was, the church was not a wealthy church that James was writing to. It was, it was the churches of misfit toys. There were just a bunch of ragtag group of people trying to make it work, working really hard. And there was a danger that anytime somebody who came into their fellowship who had wealth, they thought, oh, Finally, finally we will get to improve the status of our church. It's almost like when, when we might get excited if there's a famous celebrity or athlete who makes a profession of faith in Christ. All right, that's going to elevate the status of the gospel now that this player or this musician or this actor, and we feel like, oh, well, those, those it's like an attitude of advance. It's like not seeing people for really who they are but for what they can do for us. Makes me think even of Psalm 146 when he cautioned the people about putting their trust in powerful people. I think the people that James was writing to here were kind of looking around saying, you know what? It's been tough to make the bills around here. If we could only get some wealthy people in here, that'd help pay the bills. Let's give them the good seats in the back. If we only had some influential people in here, let's, let's make sure that we cater to and, and help out and, and make things easy. And for those who we don't think provide any real status for us, well, you know, they can go sit over there or stand in the corner. You know, it's interesting. When we see it, it is ugly and incomprehensible. When we see favoritism being dumped on somebody else or even dumped on ourselves, it is ugly and incomprehensible. And that is because... Neighbor love, neighbor love reveals 
our understanding and application of the gospel. That's what I want you to think about. That's what I want you to see as we look at a passage like this that's dealing with the issue of favoritism and clearly at the very beginning of this passage identifying it as something that is inconsistent with following Christ. Verse 1, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. There is that picture that, that this call to neighbor love reveals our understanding and application of the gospel. And there's a few things that I want us to see as we walk through, and they all kind of build on one another. The very first thing that I want us to see is that favoritism, this picture of favoritism, is a rejection of neighbor love. That's what's being unpacked for us in verses 1 through 8 of, of chapter 2. After he says how inconsistent that is, we can't claim to have faith in Jesus and and favor people over others for whatever reason that is, whether we think they're beneath them or we're trying to to elevate ourselves for whatever reason that is, we can't do it. And that's the picture that he gives. He talks about coming into a meeting and those who are dressed well and expensive clothing. And and this is a point where it's to say there are people who are powerful and influential who appear powerful and influential because of the way they're dressed. And there are those who are powerful and influential who you would never know. And that's always a reminder for us as well, too, because they don't have those typical displays of things that we're looking at. And and again, he gives us the example. He asks the question in verse 1. In verses 2 and following, he gives us a, a, a picture of what this is looking like as it plays itself out to them. And then in beginning in verse 5, He kind of gives them the reality of what it's like to live in God's kingdom. It almost might make some of you think back about the Sermon on the Mount, that who are the powerful and who are the wealthy and who are the rich? And he says, hey, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? You know, we talk about this sometimes. We talk about trials and difficulties and understanding that the greatest thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it shows us that the, the way that we follow Christ, the way that we live in him, the way that we demonstrate our, is, is, our, is our need for him. When we come to grips with our desperate need for Jesus, when we recognize we have no ability in ourselves, we have no wealth, no status, no nothing that can make us right before God other than putting our faith completely in Jesus Christ, that's when we begin to understand what kingdom wealth looks like. And it looks like more dependence dependence on God than anything else. So he said, look at the poor. The poor have the advantage of being daily reminded of their need and their dependence. The poor know they're not calling their own shots. The poor know how they need other people. They need divine help. They need assistance. The danger for the rich is they can go through their entire lives and never know it. The danger for the rich in God's kingdom is they can go their own way depending on their own strength and their own resources and their own intelligence and their own ability to work and provide for themselves and never come to the realization of their desperate and daily need of God's grace and God's mercy. He he lays that out for us in in 5 and he concludes this section about this upside-down understanding of the kingdom with pointing to what he calls the the royal law. Here, to love your neighbor as yourself. This this royal law is is really an understanding of the gospel. Some of you might start thinking about that passage in in Luke 10 where the, the 
the expert in the law wanted to test Jesus about what, is it, what does it mean to, to, to inherit eternal life. And he, he told him to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and live your neighbor as yourself. And those of you who know that passage know that what followed was a clarification of neighbor love and what does neighbor love look like. See, in Luke 10 there, Jesus is answering this neighbor question, love your neighbor as yourself, with both the who and the how. He, he not only talks about who the neighbor is in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is an oxymoron, right? Those of you who know that passage know that that doesn't make any sense at all to say the Good Samaritan. Perhaps the better way to understand it would be the despised Samaritan. If you want to know what the debate between Jews and Samaritans was truly like, just think about the people who voted differently than you in the last election. That was the, te- that was the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. They, the way that you might think about somebody who voted differently than you in the last election is the same sort of tension that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. They had no time and no respect for one another at all. So Jesus begins to unpack this picture of neighbor love as, a, as not only the who, but also the how in the demonstration of that from the Good Samaritan. He begins to show them that it's really the gospel of Jesus Christ that defines what this neighbor love is. That's why it's so essential in this passage right here in the middle. It's almost like everything before and after is hinging off verse 8 here and this idea of neighbor love. It's the, it's the antidote for the favoritism. It's the, the picture of the gospel. It's the reminder of, of who and how to love our neighbors. It's not just the people that we like, not just the people who are like us, not just the people that we think will improve our status, but our neighbors are those around us that God has placed before us that might look differently, act differently, think differently than us. These are the people that we're called not to show favoritism against and partiality against. These are the people that we are called to love with a gospel love. And he, and he, really, he really goes on with it. And he talks about the danger of favoritism. Look in verses 8 through 11 with me. In verses 8 through 11, not only does he say that favoritism is a rejection of neighbor love in the first part, but he now says that neighbor love is fundamental to faith in Jesus. That, that loving our neighbor is fundamental. He, he gives us the example of following the law. And he says some really amazing things for us that are, again, we can fool ourselves into thinking, well, I haven't broken all those laws. I haven't murdered anyone. I won't ask for a show of hands of who hasn't murdered someone, nor will I ask for a show of hands of those who have fallen into adultery. But we typically look at those and say, well, I've never done those things. Then James kind of resets the record here and says, well, what about, what about favoritism? How have you treated people who maybe can't improve your status? How have you treated people who maybe you thought could improve your status? And he takes all of that and says, hey, this is law-breaking. And that's, that's big. And we think, well, I, well gosh, I, I've done some, small, I've, some little things, but I haven't done those big things. James says something really challenging here for us. Hey, if we're going to live under the authority of God's word, there's a real two-by-four to the face in this passage. It is if we have broken any laws, we're a lawbreaker. You know what that makes every single one of us in this room? 
a lawbreaker. Every single one of us is a lawbreaker. And you know what else we know? We have no hope of obeying all these laws. We have no hope of living in a way that demonstrates the holiness that God has called us to. That's the bad news. But hey, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And when he died on the cross, he died for all of our sins and law-breaking. And that when we put our faith and trust in him, the most beautiful, incredible exchange of all time happens. He takes our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, our failure, our inability to live up to the law, to keep the law, to love our neighbor, the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves and not show favoritism. He takes all of that in himself and applies his perfect righteousness, his perfect sinlessness to us. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but because of his grace and mercy. This section here, five down, or nine down, where he talks about breaking the law, that's a reminder to us that none of us could be made right with God by keeping the law. Romans 3.20 points us to that. As much as we look at the law and we understand the law, the law tells us we can't, we won't, and we didn't. It is only through faith in Christ. It's the gospel that helps us see that this ability to, to love our neighbor can only be possible through faith in Jesus Christ. I can't love my neighbor. I can't. I even like my neighbors. I've just met most of them. I don't know if they like me or not. We're still very much new to the neighborhood. But I can't do that out of my own strength. The only way I can love my neighbor well is when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I allow his spirit and his word to live in me. So neighbor love is fundamental to faith in Jesus. Because without faith in Jesus, we are all lawbreakers. We are all, as we say, guilty as sin and deserve the very judgment and wrath of God. We are without hope. But because of Jesus, because of what he has done on our behalf, and when we put our faith and trust in what he has done alone, it allows us to be counted with him in his perfect righteousness alone. Thirdly, though, I want you to see this. This is very interesting, the way he, he wraps up this section in 12 and 13. I mean, he talks about how favoritism is a rejection of neighbor love. Can't have it doesn't work, incompatible, inconsistent. He talks about how neighbor love is fundamental to faith in Jesus. It just, it is essential to what it means to have the gospel applied to our lives. And then lastly, he tells us that this faith in Jesus is a pipeline of mercy. That faith in Jesus is a pipeline. I struggled with what word to use here. But it, it's this conduit. It's the way that God's mercy and grace passes through us to our neighbors. 
that when we believe in Christ and, and we're living for Him and His Spirit is leading us and His Word is guiding us and we are living under that authority, then now our lives are just not about ourselves, but our lives are conduits, are, are pipelines for the grace and mercy of God. The way he phrases here in, in 13, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others, makes me think of that parable that Jesus told about the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. Do you remember that one? One person had been given millions, and the other person wouldn't even forgive 10 bucks. And he said, it's not possible for you to understand and fully apply the gospel to your life if you can be so unforgiving of all of the ways you have yourself been forgiven. It's inconsistent. It's impossible. It's much like we said with this favoritism. It is ugly and incomprehensible. It is ugly and incomprehensible for believers in Jesus Christ not to be forgiving, gracious, merciful people. And that's what he was calling them to in this. If you have been merciful in 13, God will be merciful when he judges you. So, you know, I'm afraid sometimes, me too, okay, I'll throw the me too. Sometimes we act like God's mercy and grace was a limited time offer. Sometimes we act like, well, I, I'm glad I got in on the ground floor of God's mercy and grace, but you... You better get your act together. You, you better get it out there and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for God's grace and mercy in my life, but you're a really messed up person. And you need to get your act together. And what we have done with God's grace and mercy is we haven't been a pipeline to a world in desperate need. We've been a stagnant pool. We have been a stagnant pool of nasty water never being what we were called or created to be. We've, we've become a mercy hoarder and a grace hoarder. How, how awful and incomprehensible could that be for us to be given so much, to be forgiven so much in God's grace and his mercy and all that he's given us, and then for us to become these stagnant pools hoarding his grace and his mercy for himself, unwilling to share it with anybody else. The warning in this passage, the, the how could it be question that it opens with, reminds us and calls us that our faith in Jesus means that you are now, are now a pipeline for his mercy and grace. That it should flow through us. As much as it throws, flows in us, it should flow through us into a desperately broken and hurting and rebellious world. That's why we're still here, by the way. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you are still here on this earth, you are still here to be a pipeline of God's grace and mercy. That is the call that he has placed on your life. I know that for a fact. He has called you to be a pipeline of his mercy. That's why when there's not mercy being passed on, it is so ugly and incomprehensible. I came across a, a great quote this week from pastor and Bible teacher from Sri Lanka. Maybe some of you have heard it before. D.T. Niles. Uh, it's one of those that's probably get attributed to everybody. So, so I'm, I, I will fully accept if you can come up with five other names that said this quote besides D.T. Miles, and I'll defer to you on that. But he said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. 
following Christ is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. How ugly and awful is it when we show favoritism and we hoard the grace and mercy of God? You and I are beggars who've received the most amazing gift we could ever imagine that we could have never deserved and never earned. And how is it possible? This is James' question. How is it possible we can claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus and show this kind of favoritism and partiality to others? Some of you know what a rhetorical question is? This is a rhetorical question. It demands the answer you can't. It's impossible. It's inconceivable for you Princess Bride fans. Favoritism is a rejection of neighbor love. Neighbor love is fundamental to faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus is a pipeline of mercy. This mercy is to be passed on. In just, in just a minute, we're going to sing together, His mercy is more. And there's a wonderful line in one there. It says, He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Good news. That's us. That's you and me. You and I are the weakest, the vilest, and the poor apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Please do not ever forget that. When I was in elementary school, I wasn't a good guy. I was kind of a jerk. Some of you might think I'm still a jerk, but maybe just an older jerk than I was in elementary school. And I remember... You know, there's certain things that you can remember, certain things that you said that were hurtful, and certain things that people said to you that are likewise hurtful. We're going to talk more about this when we get to James chapter 3, as you know. But I remember I had two really good friends, and, uh, and we, were lo- we were together, and, and there was another guy who wanted to be our fourth, and I was a jerk. I didn't want him to. I'm like, I, no. You know why? I didn't think he could improve our status. I, didn't, I, I was dumb enough to think as a fifth grader I knew that somebody where I thought that somebody was beneath me. It's humiliating and embarrassing to think about. But it's also frightening that I'm this old now and I can still remember that conversation very vividly on the playground out behind South Point Elementary number two. And I remember saying to them, no, I don't want this guy to be our friend. That even sounds ridiculous to say it. I said that to those guys. And you know what they said to me? We were your friend. I still remember that. They said, I don't know why you don't want this guy to be our friend because we were your friend. See, somewhere along the way I had forgotten, I had forgotten that I am the vilest, I am the weakest, I am the poor apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. I had forgotten that. And I was hoarding grace and mercy in a way that was so ugly and incomprehensible. But I had good friends who reminded me of that in that moment. And I pray as you and I think about this, a couple things I want you to to do this week, if you would. We're trying to memorize this passage. I'm going to challenge you again on that. We're trying to memorize a section of James here. And 
I don't want to continue to memorize this passage with us. And, and if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're with us, we're, we're going to keep plugging along. I want you to read ahead for next week. We're going to finish off chapter 2. So, so working to memorize the scripture at the bottom of your outline together this week and, and reading ahead to the passage we're going to look at next week are things that I would encourage you to do. But here's what I also want you to do. I want you to consider the people that God brings into your life this week. I want you to have an intentional focus this week of considering the people that you come across. Everybody. Not just the people that you think you... I want you to ask God to help you notice the people you don't normally notice. I want you to ask for God to help you to see the people you don't normally see and ask yourself the question, am I loving them as a neighbor? Am I loving them? Am I, am I seeking to be the pipeline of God's grace and mercy in their lives? Or am I only seen to draw them to people who I think can improve my status and away from people who are beneath me? I want you to consider, if I could, I think God's going to bring a lot of people into your life this week. Maybe even starts with the cashier of wherever you're going out to lunch after this. Consider the question, am I a pipeline of God's grace and mercy into this person's life? Or am I showing partiality and committing the sin of favoritism by hoarding the grace and mercy of God? I want you to consider that as you seek to continue to memorize and and read ahead. God has, if you're in Christ, God has given you so much. He's given you so much to be shared and passed on. And I pray that that's the kind of day and the kind of week that you will have. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the warning to us. God, it is so easy to fool ourselves into thinking that this doesn't necessarily apply to us because we didn't move seats this morning based on people's giving and income. But God, this is a real reality for us as believers. That You have called us. You've redeemed us. And you have placed us in the world to be pipelines of your grace and your mercy. God, help us. Help us this week. Help us to put our faith and trust in you and alone. Not to, not to look at people and relationships to put our faith and hope in. That's, we know that's false. That's a false gospel. Help us to put our faith and trust in you and in you alone. God, help us to see the world around us the way that you do. Even in its brokenness and rebellion, help us to see it the way that you do. Help us to be as your followers, as those who've been redeemed by your grace. Help us to be people of grace, to be people of mercy. Don't allow us to become stagnant pools hoarding your grace and your love for ourselves. God, you have called us and left us here for this moment in time that we might be examples, that we might be pictures, that we might, we might be your masterpieces of your redeeming love. In your heavenly name, amen.